All right, we are back. I have a mixed bag of things to talk about here in our third segment. You know, I guess first off, I should note that I finally got around to looking at the movie, The Social Network. And all I can say is if that approximates even half of what a jackass Mark Zuckerberg is, he's, he's got to be worse than Trump. But since Trump and Facebook both seem to be recurring themes in the background of today's show, I must, I think, quote from my friend Janice's posting on Facebook. <laughs> Someone anonymous said the following, I crack up when people say I'll vote for him. He speaks his mind. Since when does speaking your mind make you presidential material? My drunk uncle always speaks his mind. Maybe he should run. It does make about as much sense as Trump. Thank you for that, Janice. But, you know, I'm still thinking about uh, what we mentioned in last week's program, the Who's Stealing Your Vote, a documentary by John Wellington Ellis. is something we need to talk about on this show. It's an old documentary at this point, but still stands up. And what struck me in watching it was that phrase, which became part of American culture. You remember this? Don't tase me, bro. I think everyone in the country was talking about that phrase as this guy on video got tased by the police. But what seems to have been lost in the shuffle was why he was tased and what event he was at. He got tased because he wouldn't shut up while confronting John Kerry with the fact that, uh, according to Greg Pallast, former Radio Parallax guest, why there was something fishy about the 2004 election. And when this young man kept basically badgering John Kerry to say something about his early concession, well, the cop stepped in. He was being a bit unruly, but tasing him did seem to be a bit, uh, a bit much. Anyway, we hope to return to this topic uh, of this marvelous video and, and election skullduggery perhaps on next week's show. But uh, once in a while, actually not once in a while, frequently The Week magazine manages to um, summarize something in such a succinct and clear manner that it's worth quoting from. In this case, their briefing from the August 14th issue titled Exporting Radical Islam is worth quoting from extensively, I think, because it points the finger at our so-called allies, the Saudis. Per the briefing, question one, why do the Saudis proselytize? Answer, to combat the spread of Shiite Islam and ensure that the Islamic world is primarily Sunni. In recent years, the ancient Sunni-Shiite conflict in Iraq, Yemen, and throughout the Middle East has grown overt, bitter, and violent. Now that Iran has agreed to rein in its nuclear program in exchange for lifting international economic sanctions, Riyadh fears the newly enriched Tehran will be more aggressive in spreading its Shiite doctrine and promoting Shiite-led revolutions. A trove of Saudi diplomatic documents covering 2010 to 2015 recently was released by WikiLeaks. It shows a Saudi obsession with Iranian actions and Iranian influence. Question two, how do the Saudis promote their religious views? Answer, by investing heavily in building mosques, madrasas, schools, and Sunni cultural centers across the Muslim world. Indian intelligence says that India alone from 2011 to 2013, saw some 25,000 Saudi clerics arriving bearing more than $250 million to build mosques and universities and hold seminars. They quote Usama Hassan, a researcher in Islamic studies, as saying we're talking about thousands and thousands of activist organizations and preachers who are in the Saudi sphere of influence. These institutions and clerics preach the specifically Saudi version of Sunni Islam, 
which is the extreme fundamentalist strain known as Wahhabism. Next question. You might well ask, what is Wahhabism? The answer is that it was founded in the 18th century by Muslims seeking a return to Quranic literalism. Wahhabism is one of the strictest sects of Islam. The founder, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, sought the protection of an emir, in this case Muhammad ibn Saud, and the two joined forces to spread the doctrine throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, it was a descendant of that Muhammad ibn Saud that became the patriarch of the ruling family, the House of Saud. We don't think about it, but Saudi Arabia is one of the few countries in the world named after the ruling family. At any rate, it would turn out that Sheikh Mohammed ibn Abdul Wahhab's daughter married Mohammed ibn Saud, which means that the entire House of Saud is directly descended from Wahhab. This purist sect requires adherents to abstain from alcohol and drugs. The sexes are segregated with women fully covered in public. Even other Muslims who stray from these medieval practices, such as Shiites and moderate Sunni sects, are considered infidels. Prescribed punishments for crimes, among them apostasy and blasphemy, include flogging, stoning, and beheading. The next question is, how did it become so strong? And the answer is that a turning point came in 1979, when radical clerics who believed the House of Saud had been contaminated but with Western decadence led hundreds of armed militants to occupy the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And boy, if you don't remember that event, it caused quite a stink in the Islamic world. The magazine notes that deeply alarmed, the royal family sought to appease the militants by reversing the steps toward modernity the country had taken. Movie theaters and record stores were shut down, and more power was given to the religious police to seek out and punish offenses. In effect, said former diplomat John Burgess, the seizure of the Grand Mosque sent Saudi Arabia into a 30-year time warp that cut it off from the social development trajectory it had been on. Most interestingly for this correspondent, it notes that the royal family made a grand bargain with the clerics. Riyadh would fund the spread of Wahhabism abroad, as long as the extremists kept any militant activism off Saudi soil. That deal ensured that radical Islam would overwhelm moderate versions in many countries and planted the seeds of many terrorist groups. In response to the question, where has Wahhabism reached? The magazine answers, nearly everywhere in the Muslim world except where Iran holds sway. In the 1980s, Saudi money and fighters poured into Afghanistan to help the Mujahideen fight the Soviets, an effort that gave rise to the Taliban and eventually to Al-Qaeda. The magazine does not mention the key fact that the Saudi money and fighters were also being trained by America's Central Intelligence Agency. In this grand game of politics played on the world stage, America worked very hard to induce a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, hoping to give them their own Vietnam. This succeeded. Noted the magazine, in the 1990s, Saudi aided the Bosnian Muslims struggling in the wars that broke Yugoslavia up, brought the Wahhabi strain of Islam to Europe. That same decade, Saudi money helped to further radicalize Chechnya's Muslims. One of the cables released by WikiLeaks quotes then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton as saying, quote, Donors in Saudi Arabia constitute the most significant source of funding to Sunni terrorist groups worldwide, end quote. The magazine then notes rather appropriately that most members of al-Qaeda were Saudi, including Osama bin Laden, and 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers. 
Final question, where does ISIS fit into this picture? The answer is that the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria sees itself as purer than the Saudi regime. But its fundamentalist Sunni doctrine has its roots in Wahhabism. Bob Graham, a former Democratic senator from Florida who has called for declassification of the portion of the 9-11 Commission report dealing with Saudi Arabian links to the hijackers, something that would be nice if we could learn about, don't you think? says ISIS is a product of Saudi ideals, Saudi money, and Saudi organizational support. In effect, said Graham, ISIS represents a form of Wahhabi ideology that the Saudis can't control, a cancer that now threatens the kingdom. Who serves as a fuel for ISIS? Our own youth, said Saudi dissident writer Turkey al-Hamad this year. In order to stop ISIS, you must first dry up this ideology at the source. As far as I know, that is one extremely accurate summary, although what it leaves out is important too. There is a sidebar included, which I think I'll quote from, noting the Madrasa's impact. It points out that during the decade-long Afghan struggle against the Soviets, Saudi princes funded the explosive growth of Madrasa's in Pakistan and Afghanistan. These schools, located in rural communities where there was no other source of education, taught a militant form of Islam, telling students they had a sacred duty to fight infidels. Of course, we should point out that once there were no Soviet infidels to fight, American infidels appeared to have served very nicely. The magazine notes that out of these schools came the radical students who eventually formed the Taliban as well as many al-Qaeda recruits. Many of these Pakistani schools draw students from Nigeria, Indonesia, Malaysia, and elsewhere, and they return home radicalized. Anyway, this lies at the feet of our valiant ally, the Saudis. I'm hoping that you knew some or most of that, dear listener, but in case you didn't, I thought we'd better go through it. So, there you go. Further reading on this topic is recommended. Well, let's do some technology in the last five minutes we have at our disposal. We mentioned adaptive optics a few weeks back with our, in our talk with Colleen Gino, astronomical photographer. And looking at a recent copy of the Planetary Report, that fine publication of the Planetary Society, I was quite taken by some photos using adaptive optics from the Keck 2 telescope in Hawaii observing the planet Uranus. Uranus is having storms all over the place. The atmosphere of the planet resembles Saturn, maybe even Jupiter in some cases. There's so many different bands now evident. It's a darn shame that when we got our close-up look at the planet during Voyager 2's flyby in 1986, at that point, the North Pole was pointing toward the sun. Uranus is basically tilted over. I mean, way tilted over. For a couple decades prior to Voyager 2 getting there, the, I think, North Pole had been pointed at the sun. So when we got there, it was featureless, bland, nothing, yeah, yuck. Whereas now, it's very cool to look at. So I guess we have adaptive optics to thank for this. And maybe, again, something good came out of the crazy idea of the Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative of Edward Teller and Ronald Reagan. Discover Magazine had a great article in the current issue about super-Earths. We're finding them all over the place. In fact, to people's astonishment, they appear to be incredibly common out there around other stars, even though in our own solar system, we don't have any. Our home planet, Earth, is, is not a super-Earth. <laughs> you want to say it's the extreme low end of a super-Earth, I guess. 
But actually, they're loosely defined as having up to 10 times Earth mass and fall into the size and mass gap between our home planet and, say, Neptune or Uranus. It's cool stuff, but I don't have time to go into it today. Uh, final item. Technologic hacking scares the bejesus out of us. We reported two years ago, we reported last year about the allegation that uh, investigative reporter Michael Hastings might have had his car hacked. You know, this vulnerability is getting serious when Fiat Chrysler recalls 1.4 million cars after revelations that uh, a Jeep can be remotely taken over through its radio software. But if cars are a problem, what about whole cities, which have these increasingly automated, computer-generated systems managing things? We recommend that you read the New Scientist, August 8th issue article titled, How to Take Out a City. Of course, we make these recommendations all the time, and we, we hope at least some of you do these things. But the piece by Sam Wong points out that cities are getting, getting ever more sophisticated, automated, and, quote, smart, unquote, but this only increases their vulnerability to hacking. The picture accompanying the piece showed New York City with various labels of things that might be hacked, like air traffic control, sensor-activated streetlights, electric road signs, toll-collecting systems, elevators, municipal surveillance, gas stations, hospitals, water supply, sewage systems, power stations. We're going to continue to keep an eye on this topic, just uh, not today, because we're out of time. At any rate, our thanks to Cosmo Garvin. We trust we have not heard the last from that fine reporter. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we will see you next week at the same time. Oh, let the sun beat down upon my face.